starting with his name, this episode brings you one of our squadron's funniest and famous classmates. Here is Lieutenant Colonel Retired, pilot, falconer, entertainer, great skier, Roger Contact. Hey, John. Hello. <laughs> hey, Roger. Thanks for doing this. Um, as, as usual, I would like to start off just asking you, uh, do you have any messages for the uh, incoming class, the current cadets, the recent grads, or the old folks like ourselves? Well, nothing we can do to help the old folks like ourselves, I guess. But uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, the current cadets and incoming, the uh, same thing, just uh, what a privilege it is to uh, be able to be at the Air Force Academy. And uh, and for me, what a privilege it is for the career. I find that nowadays people often say, uh, thank you for your service when I get a military discount for something. And uh and uh, I thank them in return because, uh, um, well, when we joined up, it was Vietnam era, and uh, I even marched in Nixon's inaugural parade as a dually, and we were heckled. We were, uh, uh, they wouldn't let us wear the uniform in Washington, D.C. because of the danger of doing so. And uh, things are different in many good, in, in good ways in that regard, but yet they'll change again. Oh yeah. Um, so anyhow, for me, uh, just the the career and uh, and the academy, especially, was was quite a privilege and uh, not a sacrifice. Uh, for, fortunately, I mean it uh, it doesn't work that way for everybody. Yeah. No, that's 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 perfect. I uh, I think the message that I wanted to get across, especially to the uh, to current cadets, is when because they they were going through some tough times with COVID and some of the election shenanigans last year that we had some similar stuff between the end of Vietnam, the wind down of Vietnam and the uh, Watergate stuff popping up. So every, every class thinks their situation's unique. And I think we all have a, uh, a pretty good foundation, at least for the spirit of 76, which this is a podcast about the spirit of 76 and, and to kind of continue that theme Roger, you were one of the more famous cadets while we were cadets. You were the, uh, <laughs> I don't know about you were, that. You were the big time falconer. Yeah, I certainly wasn't famous, but yet uh, one of just there were only there were only four falconers, and um, so that did give me something to stand out, I guess. Uh, well, for our squadron, you were you were the only guy making national TV every week. <laughs> with the, well, not every with week. Football games. Football season, yeah. When and, the and, especially when the bird flew away at halftime. <laughs> <laughs> so that the first question I got is, how did you pull that off? How'd you get that deal? Well, it was uh, they announced in our dual year uh, that anybody that wanted to be a falconer uh, come down to those, and uh, there were eighty to a hundred of us showed up down there, and. Uh, more showed up the next day and so forth. And uh, the whole thing was persevering because uh, what you had to do is clean up bird shit. And uh, can we do this on this recording? You can do anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and cut up uh, dead chickens to feed to the feed to the falcons. And so you did the, the uh, nasty jobs that the uh, upperclassmen didn't want to do. And uh, and, and you, so uh, 
in in our year there were only four that remained at the end at the end of the year normally it was uh, down to six or eight or something like that and the upperclassmen would select who had the best uh, attitude and such but uh, there were only four that persevered through the year and stuck with it so i became a falconer so how did i mean if there's a hundred guys showing up how do they determine who's who gets to stick around or do they weed them out right away or what happens there it's self-elimination by who you obviously as, as you know the academy is a case of not enough time to do everything yeah and um so you had if you had any spare time you had to go down there and um or and, and uh log in and do the do the nasty job so it was using the extra using any time that you had to uh so, you know, the second week, uh, there was 80 to 80 to 150 <laughs> over the week that came down uh, was probably down to 40. The week after that, it was probably down to 20. And then little by little, um, the dedication uh, that people had toward it uh, showed who was, who was going to be part of it and who wasn't. Now, where did you find time for that? Because I know my dual year, I didn't have time to do anything. You know, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I lost that brain cell. <laughs> okay. And then uh, did, did it get you? Yeah. You know, I just, I, it was just that uh, the drive, it was something that when it's something you want, you do it. Yeah. <clears throat> and it, uh, yeah, there wasn't a lot of time. Obviously you couldn't just skip out of something. Yeah, so. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> Shower formation, all that stuff. You're down there. That, that's a good place <laughs> to go. <clears throat> Now, how many uh, how many falcons did you guys? I mean, because the people listening to this, very few of them have done this. What uh, what is the whole process of raising a bird from? Do you get them at, as babies, or how do you guys find them? Well, most of the falcons that we used in the uh, performances were prairie falcons, the brown ones you see flying at the events, and we would take them from the nest. Uh, so we did that each summer. We'd take a couple out, and then. Uh, train them so take them from the nest as young and uh we'd repel off of a uh, off the top of a rock formation up there by castle rock and uh mama didn't like it we'd grab a bird we wouldn't take more than one out of a nest and there were you know multiple nests in the area um at the time peregrine falcons were very rare because of the uh, ddt and uh so the only peregrine falcons we had were involved in a breeding project trying to uh, save the species. Oh, wow. And there's been, been quite a comeback from that. And then the uh, jeer falcons, uh, the white and the gray, those uh, would come from uh, northern Canada. And to tell you the truth, I don't know. How, you know, it's kind of gifts and that sort of thing, uh, how we ended up with them. Um, there were a few other odds and ends. Uh, Often we had one called a kestrel, which is a um, the smallest falcon there is, uh, and uh, those um, again. I'm not sure where the how we came across the kestrel, but or kestrels. Uh, you can trap birds of prey and then train them, but uh, typically we got them from the nest. And and I read somewhere about a uh, hybrid falcon. What what is a hybrid falcon? I'm not sure which okay. uh, which okay. one that would be. Fair enough. That was that's the one they use for, for performance now, and I guess there must be a combo of the prairie, the merlin, and the kestrel. 
Well, the Kestrel would probably not, but probably probably the Prairie and the, the Merlin would be. So maybe they get better performance out of them. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. And then, Artificial insemination. It's like designer dogs they have nowadays. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Trying to get the white ones out of there. So, so you actually you know, they, got... did, they did use artificial insemination on the uh, peregrines in the breeding program. Right. Now, you actually got to know Baffin, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the legendary falcon of our era, but there was one after that called Aurora. Is Aurora, that yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I never handled Aurora. Um, Baffin was uh, well. The yeah, Baffin was not in the always in great health and uh, always had uh, problems with her feathers and uh, and and well, that's another thing I'll say is a falcon actually is the female. The male is called the tiercel. Uh, both oh. are referred to as as falcons. So the the female is lar- larger, tiercel being a third. I mean. Uh, and a third smaller, so the male of the species is smaller. Interesting. And uh, Baffin was was a large jeer, so a female jeer. So I've I've read that they use GPS and little radio trackers on them now when they fly off. What did you guys do? We did have trackers on them when we uh, flew them. The trackers didn't work too well. We when we flew a falcon at a football game because there's a lot of distraction for the bird, of course. It's pretty cool being in there in the center of a football field, uh, twirling the lure and, you know, full stands and all that. Uh, and uh, seeing the bird come on off the, uh, off the press box. Yeah. Um, but they, we always, <laughs> we always positioned uh, other falconers outside that in case the bird flew out, we, they, we had lures out there and would bring them down out there. So we didn't really have to track them so much. Uh, getting up to the press box, we just climbed the steps, uh, Okay. you know, 15 minutes before halftime. So the guy in the and, field, there uh, were multiple falconers doing all this, right? This is where the four or five cadets every year got involved. Right. And uh, for an away game, uh, we'd take at least two of us, maybe more. And and so you'd, you'd bid for what away games you'd want to go to and go to typically two away games in a in a season. I know I went to Oregon to the Ducks uh, and figured a Falcon was a good uh, <laughs> good thing to take on a Duck and the Oregon football team wasn't as good as they are now. Yeah. Um, I also went to Notre Dame. That was not a game to to uh, to be excited about Air Force's prospects. <laughs> no. In fact, I, I remember I, you know, a lot of, so a lot of it was PR and I was on the Today in Chicago show. Yeah. And uh, they didn't prep me for they being, you know, our uh, our officers, escorts and that. I didn't even think, of, you know, I should have known they're going to ask me, well, what do I think the score is going to be? <laughs> and I can't lie, right? Well, maybe, uh, but of course, uh, since we didn't, it wasn't a known entity, I could say, well, the Air Force would prevail. Yeah. Remember that time we uh, we nearly beat Notre Dame? Yeah, I know. I remember that time well. <laughs> yeah, so it can yeah. happen. But that was at Air Force. That was not at Notre Dame. Yeah, no, correct. Uh, yep. The last question about falconry I got to ask you is: How many times did the bird bite you? <laughs> no, I can't. They, they, uh, I really didn't uh, give them something to bite. You'd give them your fists with a knuckle, and uh, so it wouldn't. You wouldn't give them anything to get a hold of. 
Okay, so um, you, you learned the trick. <laughs> yeah, and and the way they'd hurt you more would be the talons, but really you could hold them without a glove most of the time. Oh, really? So they get um, real comfortable with you? Well, and that's the thing, too, to point out uh, to people that don't know falconry is uh, that they are not pets. They don't get to like you. They get to accept you. And the reason they come back is they're hungry. You know, we we weigh them and keep them at a exercising and flying weight. Yeah. And um, that's kind of what so, they do to cadets too, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Make them come back. The Mitchells. Keep, keep them in the cage. So, so yeah, the falcons are not like a, a a a dog or possibly a cat, but where where there's a you know true affinity and affection, uh, they they don't get to like you. They get to accept you. And uh, like, I remember one of the jeer falcons, one of the gray jeers we were flying and the guy that was handling it, the jeer would fly right at him and he had to jump out of the way at the last minute. Wow. And uh, the jeer had his number, you know, and uh, so we just had somebody else fly the jeer and stood fast and the, uh, the jeer ran into him and tumbled and, and uh, decided not to do that anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, so that's, each that's, each would have their own personality in a way and some some were the better performers and flyers than others and they they go pretty quick right yeah definitely what's what's like yeah. what's like the max speed you think they got up to well you know in a stoop they can get over 100 miles an hour but i don't really think in in our training that they would typically do that Okay. They wouldn't really get to that. So they were probably, they were probably zipping along at 50, 60, something like that. That's still pretty good for a bird with sharp claws and a beak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look at looking for food and you've got the food in your hand, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So th that kind of leads me on to uh, ask you, why did you go to the academy in the first place? Where, where'd you grow up and why did you go to the academy? I didn't have anything better that came up. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, this, this is a story. So my, between my junior, I wouldn't make it if it were now, I wouldn't be there um, because it's so competitive now, but between my junior and senior year at high school, I had never heard of the Air Force Academy and my parents took a vacation to Colorado and my dad came back and said, well, what, what do you think about going to the Air Force Academy? And I said, what's that? And uh, so in the fall, um, I filled out an application. I really didn't know if I wanted to go. And um, then I got an alternate nomination um, from the uh, congressman. So, uh, you know, I did all the writing and all the, all the tests and PE and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So having an alternate nomination, I figured, well, okay, I don't, don't have to worry about that. And in March, I got a letter that said, you have an appointment to the Air Force Academy, you respond within seven days. Jeez. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know if I wanted to go. Yeah. But I, I figured, well, if I don't, don't take it, um, then I won't have it. And I could always go. And if it is, if it, if it isn't right, if I don't like it, I could leave. Yeah. 
So, so that's I how I ended up there. A lot of us had that attitude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, and uh, but yet, as far as I didn't have a goal, uh, I would have probably gone to Indiana University. I lived near Indianapolis at the time, and and uh, probably would have majored in business, but I didn't have any specific objective. So yeah, the academy was. Uh, it's not like today where, gosh, the only people that get in it are stellar records and and uh academic and athletic i didn't do anything athletic and, well, uh, well i i disagree but I'll, we'll get into that in a minute okay <laughs> you're, you're pretty well you're a pretty good skier as i recall well yeah we but that wasn't uh part of competitive athletics <laughs> well it was in our little squadron there our little the insane group we know as the pink panthers <laughs> well we certainly were competitive yeah and uh I wanted to uh, so so just give and I, I, you don't have to go into it unless you got any great stories. The uh, Dooley year was that significant for you at all? Like was you, the you weren't year sure, significant. Um, well, you weren't sure you wanted to go, and then so you stuck it out. So I'm curious what happened. Dooley year was it fun or was it like everybody else? Yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed <laughs> the challenge. Um, I enjoyed the friends. Um, you know, my one thing I had going for me in my application was uh, Boy Scouts and being an Eagle Scout. And so um, a lot of those skills helped out. Um, I was really, you know, seeing the things and seeing the athletics. And like I say, I was not athletic. So I thought the the wall, when I saw the pictures of the wall in the, in the catalog, I thought I'm never, because I'm short. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm five six now, and I was shorter when I started. And uh, I thought I could never do that. Yeah, that and, wall's still eight feet, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and and to tell you the truth, it was it, it, that was no problem. And uh, so um, the things that I was fearful of uh, didn't uh, didn't turn out to be uh, an issue. Oh yeah, the assault course ate my lunch, but. Uh, and ate a lot of dust there, but uh, yeah. Otherwise, uh, obstacle-wise, you know, obstacle course and uh, group things, um, I enjoyed and always always enjoyed my experience at the academy every day. And so that's I never thought about leaving. Wow, you're one of the rare ones. Most of us were <laughs> miserable for four years, but wanted the uh, end result. So that's cool. I just want that. That's a perspective that I think a lot of people need to understand. There are some people that thrive at that place. Well, maybe I don't know if thrive is the word, but I, but I, but I did really enjoy being there. Um, yeah. And I think the first time I, I realized you and I were going to be in the same squadron was down at Fort Benning. Oh, is that? Yeah. Okay. The third, yeah. the third uh, right. deal for Paris. Now that was a pretty interesting few weeks, wasn't it? <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> Did you have any uh, interesting stories of that, or? Oh, it was hot. I know that. Um, yeah, I remember jumping out of the C one twenty three, and the the plane it takes off. Uh, it doesn't have the door, you know. It has the door off, and uh, so I protected that reserve chute because that's the last thing I wanted was that reserve because I was sitting near the door. I didn't want that reserve chute somebody pulling it by accident and it popping out the door and me slamming against the side. 
<laughs> I, I think you and I had the same challenge because uh, for those of you who don't know, in, in Fort Benning, they did it alphabetically. They'd load you up alphabet A through Z. Going into the plane, they'd break it off at the middle of the alphabet, then Z, Z to the middle. And then we said, no, come on, the same guys are going out first every time. We want to go out towards the back and say, okay, we'll go the other way. They went Z to A and then broke it off in the middle. <laughs> so we're at the front, <laughs> yeah. front of the door, either left or the right side, all, all the jumps down. It was really funny. <laughs> I, didn't, okay. I didn't mind going out, for, going out early, but I just didn't like sitting near the door, near an open door with a parachute that could pop out, out the well, door and tear you in half. Yeah, I was number one one time, and it was sitting there for like the whole six minutes going, do I really want to do this with the door open and you're standing there? And, and the guy throws you out so you don't have a choice. But that was, that was pretty, pretty entertaining. True. Um, so then you end up in this insane clown posse known as the Pink Panthers. What was that like? Well, obviously, a great group. Um, but I don't remember getting started, but, you know, just uh, – Truly great friendships from that. Uh, yeah, a bunch of clowns. Um, I didn't, I wasn't always the, I wasn't a ringleader of the clown happenings. Um, didn't, didn't always go out for a lot, all of them. But, <laughs> but well, I, I, that, don't sell yourself short, Roger. You did one of the well, greatest skits. Over, well, that's over. true. Yeah. Oh, the skit. Well, you know, actually, uh, when, uh, Rocket Man, John Barron launched the rocket out the stairwell. I was out in the stairwell with him. <laughs> well, there were a bunch of I us was, watching it. <laughs> right, everybody was watching it. They were down in another room, but I was in the stairwell. And uh, so somehow I didn't get caught. Wow. I, uh, yeah, Kai will tell you that they got, he got caught because of the honor code. Yeah. Well, and Kai and Ron got caught. I walked, uh, they both ran up upstairs and dashed out. And uh, I walked to the other side of the, uh, I walked out of the stairwell, didn't know, see, they saw somebody coming and thought we were being chased. I didn't know we were being chased. So I walked and went to the drinking fountain and sipping away. And uh, and then somebody <laughs> comes flying through the door and I thought, oh, holy, <laughs> we're being chased. <laughs> so I just sat there sipping water while you guys were all coming down from one of the rooms down the hall saying, wow, that was shit hot. Cool. Shut up. Guys, shut up. <laughs> well, it was not only cool, but they doggone lit the hill on fire that the stupid rocket uh, caught the hill on fire over there. <laughs> that's what, Well, that's it had what a couple of firecrackers on it too. Yeah. I just remember it was really neat to shoot a, a model rocket out of the dorm or out of the stairwell window and then uh, we saw it go kind of explode over on the hill and go, oh boy we're in trouble now <laughs> but other than that one uh yeah i didn't play in too many of the reindeer games but you were the you were the guy on the skits How well our skits okay tell, tell, tell everybody what the skit uh, idea was and the concept and what how it came out i would presume that it still goes on i don't know um I mean, I had seen it before. Uh, you make a little guy out of, uh, uh, with, by, by using two people, you cut a hole in the back of the shirt, and I would put my hands down uh, and into shoes and be the feet through, through, some, through some shorts and into shoes and be the feet. And then Dave Connors was the hands, and uh, it was his hands that, uh, so he'd put his arms be, behind me and through that hole in the back of the shirt. And, uh, and shave me or or uh, whatever else and just goofy things. So 
Um, <laughs> and you were trying to give speeches and stuff. It was really funny. <laughs> yeah, we'd always have a theme. I think that's what made it good is we do different things. And in fact, one time, and so if you all have seen that, I don't know. Do you think they'd still do that sort of skit? I would think so. I don't. I can't imagine anybody wanting to be in your position in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one time we got creative and did it standing on my head. <laughs> oh, I, I just remember <laughs> so I was, one of the more funny things because Dave would just mess with you and you know pick your nose and and put toothpaste in your eyes and all this stuff. You just took it like a trooper. I was really impressed. <laughs> well, I'm going on with my speech, yeah. With the theme of the day. Yeah, you're telling and, you know, everybody Dave, how to get Dave, ready for the uh, next, next week's inspection or better be tighter and drill and all this stuff is happening near your hands. It was pretty fun. I, yeah, well, Dave Dave was uh, quite an artist and uh, and uh, roommate, good friend, somebody I've lost touch with and tried to get in touch with. We'll, we'll, so, we'll hunt him down. Maybe this thing will pop. get him to pop back up. Maybe so. So one of the summer things that you and I did at the same time, I think, was Philmont. Mm -hmm. Do you remember much about that? Yeah, it was, uh, and, and um, as a result of going there, so Philmont is a Boy Scout High Adventure Camp backpacking, and uh, I went in the first iteration, so we did some training, and then I took two crews out, two crews of scouts and their adult leaders, and got them uh, oriented and started on their trek. And... Um, really a neat experience. And from that, uh, you know, I, uh, that was my first time being there from that. I decided I really wanted my kids to go there and, and three of my four kids, uh, were, were able to go there. I took the boys as a scout leader myself. And, uh, one of my daughters went, the only reason the other did not go is she couldn't, they wouldn't medically clear her. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I remember Philmont being really special and how we had to find the uh, the weakest kid and give him the cinnamon for the for the special ranger cobbler. Remember that? Give him the cinnamon. No, I don't remember that. I remember. I, well, that, in my deal, we always had to find the kid who was being picked on or whatever and make him kind of the hero and say, here, again, you give him a little thing of cinnamon and he'd put that in the ranger cobbler so it made it taste better. Okay. That, that, that's what well, you know, I... Uh, with my two groups that I took out, um, I met up with the first group on their last day. So I knew their itinerary and where they would be. And I hiked in and uh, joined up with them. And, you know, you could tell who was going to have problems. And one of the adult leaders was uh, overweight. And uh, and you, you could see the challenges they had ahead of them. And after their week of a trek, and then I hiked in and met with them, they, they just really had come together. They had grown uh, and uh, met the challenge. And it was such a, such a growth experience. That's, uh, um, that, that's why, like I say, I made it my objective to make sure my kids got the opportunity to go there. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, especially for folks that aren't used to the outdoors like that, that that's a pretty cool deal. Yeah. <laughs> By that time, I think we'd had enough of the outdoors with the, between Siri and all the all the other stuff, but I really enjoyed those those three weeks of uh, filming. Um, the other, the other, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed Siri. I mean, you know, just being out in the woods that was that was my kind of thing. Yeah, okay, be, being in the box and all that. Stuff. Well, that part, no, <laughs> that part of Siri, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I endured that part. Yes. Yeah. No, I, 
I'm the trekking in the woods. Now, the, it was a challenge because I had a, a kid from New York on his first ever camping trip. And uh, so trying yeah. to help him along was. <laughs> yeah, we had we only had a Varvalo Ford group. We all four of us got along pretty well. We just got hungry. And we woke up one morning and there was an elk in our area and we we, we sharpened sticks to try and kill the elk. And the elk, it was just laughing at us. It was so huge. And if we'd hit the thing and hurt it, it would have killed us. But it was it was just one of the funny things of Siri for me. Much, you know, much. They, we had, they gave us two live chickens, right? Yeah. And they uh, remember that? I remember, I remember the cow. I remember they killing the cow. Right. The group. But the but your small group each got two live chickens. So we yep. took the one chicken, wrung its neck, and uh, prepped it. We went over to the other chicken. It was laying there dead. <laughs> I was already scared of you guys. <laughs> yeah, scared. The, we scared it to death, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> got the picture. <laughs> it ain't making it out of here alive. Oh, yeah. my. <laughs> Poor chicken. Hey, you know, I mentioned, um, I mentioned my uh, daughter not being medically cleared, one of my daughters. And uh, that's one thing that... Uh, I've been blessed with was the Air Force career. I did 24 years in the Air Force, and um, I had two things with the kids that were major medical events. My uh, oldest daughter uh, had had four open heart surgeries, and I could not have been better taken care of than with military medical care. Um, she was an emergency air evac from Alaska, and um, and they actually arranged an assignment, not arranged, but it was, uh, gave preference for an assignment to Boston to be at Boston Children's, which had the best uh, um, renowned surgeon in the world for her particular condition. And uh, and then the other was my son, uh, we were in a NATO assignment in Belgium and was hit by a car and uh, spent a month in a um, Belgian hospital, but then they brought us back to Walter Reed and and uh, and then actually sent him to Seattle Children's for for rehab with and we were we were my wife and I at uh, various times were on funded orders as non medical attendants and we'd see other parents uh, having to go back to work and we were actually on paid funded orders and uh, and that sort of thing so well taken care of and uh, that's that's something as you consider do I stay with the Air Force. Uh, um, you can't get a better, um, better care for you and your family than, than that. Is that a uh, bird you got back to? You got a falcon in your house? <laughs> it's a blue jay out in the back. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear that. I'm on my headset, so I didn't, it usually doesn't pick up. Usually, even if I flush the toilet, you don't hear it. Yeah. I better be careful. It's picking up everything. But that, that's a real powerful statement about the, uh, the medical and how it's taking care of your family and, and all circumstances. That, that's, that's really important for po- folks to know. They, they do take care of their own in the uh, military. Yeah, I had uh, <clears throat> the time my son was hit by a car and I went to a, a meeting at NATO headquarters and the general called me, heard that I was there, which, uh, you know, how does the general know that I'm at a meeting and... Uh, I was a lowly lieutenant colonel and uh, and forbade me to to do that and uh, that I had to be at the hospital with my, my wife and, and son. I was spending the night there already, but uh, I figured, well, I can go to this meeting in the daytime. Wow. Yeah, that's good. Good leadership. Yeah. Uh, last academy question was uh, third lieutenant. 
Where'd you, where'd you do that at? Uh, I went to Eglin and um, then also, um, so I, I uh, had some flights. Uh, it was a, it was a test squadron at Eglin and then uh, went over to uh, Hurlbird also got an OV 10 ride there. And that was actually the most fun flew in an F four on formation with a, um f-15 and one but the ov-10 was and out to the range was just incredible what what was the uh did you drop stuff or yeah he dropped some smoke and flares on on targets on the range and uh the uh well of course the uh pilots will try to try try to make you air sick which i've never ever been air sick but uh (laughs) um that thing is so maneuverable but the first time he rolled in and uh, smoke on the target and then pulled out and my wh- whole world went black because the G's that that thing would pull. Well, how much and, did, uh, they, did they pull? Uh, it was probably five, six, but yeah. he hadn't told me, you know, what to do. And he <laughs> said, well, how was that? <laughs> and I said, well, okay. I said, but my vision kind of, kind of went down to virtually nothing. And he says, oh yeah. When we, I'll, I'll when we pull in uh, or when we start pulling up, you want to tighten your stomach muscles. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, dude. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> tell, you, tell you afterwards. So, so overall, I guess third lieutenant, I wasn't, I wouldn't say it was, uh, I mean, the flight, the flights that I got were great. Otherwise some administrative duties to, to do that. They didn't, they really didn't have a lot for us to do to tell yeah. you the truth. Yeah. Got to go to the beach, right? Uh, we did do that. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. Now my my folks spent 26 years in Gulf Breeze after after I graduated. They they came down to Pensacola and liked it and retired there. Yeah. Yep. So then you went off uh, when you graduated. You went off the pilot training at Reese, right? Yes. Uh, yep. What was? And then uh, from there you got your assignment to do what? Uh. Flew to the C-130 at Little Rock. Uh, I was there for a year and a half, and then C-130 at Elmendorf, uh, Anchorage, Alaska. And that's when I ran into you in the Philippines, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, because I had one. I had one of our few trips flying around the, uh, and I ran into Woody there in the Philippines too. Yeah, Woody. I think I think Kai was there that night too. I want to say there. there? I want to say there. All Woody. It was some kind of Mongolian night or something, and I happened to be in town, and Kai showed up, and you were there, and Woody was there. I was like, "What this is old?" Like there was one time I ran into Jorgi and in the Okinawa and Okinawa BX, and that was the thing. You could go around the world. I I was one time walking in Paris, on the streets of Paris, and some guy says, "Hey, Roger," and it was uh, one of the neighbors, uh, neighbor boys, uh, twins. I don't remember which one, N-A-B-O-R, and yeah. uh, not not my not my next door neighbor, and yeah. um, he was he was at that time an airline pilot and uh, just having having lunch on the street of the cafe. So here you could be in downtown Paris, walking past the cafe, and somebody call out your name. <laughs> That's cool, and and you made the Air Force pretty much a career. Yeah, twenty four years, and you and, flew uh, the whole time pretty much. Not at all. No, uh, actually, I spent most of the time out, outside of flying. 
I was always in something related to air transport um, in some way. But um, the I mentioned getting the tour at Boston. That was Hanscom in, right. in, in Systems Command Acquisition. But I was on acquisition programs for the uh, command and control for air transport. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> command and staff and residents. Um, I was a commander of services squadron, so a support squadron. That was while I was at McCord. Uh, so I transitioned to the C-141, and um, but I didn't. Fl- I I had only about 500 hours in it. Um, <laughs> only 500 hours. <laughs> well, in a 141, that's not a lot of hours. I, I'm just I, I, I'm laughing because I that, that I only had like 1,800 hours in, in all my time. So. <laughs> well, yeah, but but in the type of flying you were doing, that was a lot of flying. Yeah, yeah, there was a you lot know, of takeoff when, and landings. Yeah. Right. When we'd fly across, because most of our flights were across one of the ponds. Yeah. Um, let's see. And then the NATO, the NATO tour, that was uh, coordinating air transport, um, so not flying. And, uh, yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of time outside the cockpit, over half the time. Coming yeah. back to the cockpit after five years away was quite a challenge. Really? What, what, was, yeah. what do you think the biggest uh, issue there was? Well, just your um, situational awareness and um, that you develop in flying and just not having that. And and that at the same time, I was changing from the 130 to the 141. Yeah, picking up speed on that one, yeah. And then a number of years I did in retirement eventually go to a a regional airline job. and, uh, And then again, I hadn't flown anything in five years. So getting your brain moving fast again and just situational awareness is tough. Did you ever have any close calls? Uh, nearly died in Norway in the C-130 in an airdrop. I was co-pilot. What was going on there? Uh, pilot uh, error. <laughs> and the wake turbulence, uh, we were number seven of a nine ship formation. It's kind of a long story. I won't go through the whole story, but um, the uh, aircraft commander used differential power to get out of the wake vortices, and that differential power um, he used he took one and two engines to max and three and four to idle, and uh, we went from a thousand feet. Uh, we had a load of Norwegian paratroopers in the back, looking at the drop zone just ahead of us, full of uh, parachutes, and uh, we recovered at. 500 feet uh, and uh, I was looking at the ground coming up on my side and I, I assumed we were dead, that we were gone. It, it was wow. coming up so fast. Wow. And you went under the guys dropping a heady or what, how did that happen? Did you scatter the uh, paratroopers? Well, we were just prior to the drop zone. Had we been okay. yeah. a little Got closer, it. yeah, we would have cut sliced through guys. Oh man. The doors were open. I don't know how they didn't fall out in the back. Um, some of them. Um, <laughs> so none of them, none of them intentionally <clears throat> fell out. They got, they jumped at the right place. Well, no, they, we, we ended up ninety degrees to the drop zone heading. Wow. And um, the the plane behind us lost lost sight of us below. It was two squadrons. The we were from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, on a rotation to Europe, and the other was from from Frankfurt, Rhine-Main, <clears throat> okay. Germany. And uh, they lost sight of us, 
beneath their aircraft, mm. which there's uh, windows uh, where you can see practically straight down. Oh, wow. So yep. years later, I was uh, telling the story at a squadron in the C-141. And one of the flight engineers said, that was you? He said, <laughs> he said I was in the C-130 in the plane right behind you. Oh, wow. He said, we thought you were dead. <laughs> he said, what happened? Because nobody, you know, nobody could understand what, how it could have happened. And uh, so I explained it to him. <laughs> so I'm just curious on, for Air Force people, when something of that nature occurs in this air, do you go back and write a report or what? Does anybody get, have to do a safety analysis? What happens there? I was, that's one thing that I'm very disappointed that didn't happen. Okay. Um, I worked in safety in my airline job and I, the safety job uh, was quite influential, uh, making a real difference. And I talked to my squadron commander uh, when we got back briefly and he was aware that, uh, you know, we had nearly crashed and, and I thought there should have been an investigation because it was a attitude. Um, it, there were hotshot instructors that said, well, what do you do when you get in wake vortices? And it was an unauthorized maneuver to use differential power. Hmm. And so the, the aircraft commander I was with uh, picked up on, on that suggestion and did it. Um, I think that our safety culture in the Air Force has changed a lot, but at the time, you know, we're near just post Vietnam, his com the commander's comment was, "Well, we're glad you guys are okay." And uh, and and I said one more time, "Was well, it shouldn't it shouldn't be looked into?" I, I I wasn't trying to get the aircraft commander in trouble. I just wanted to, um, you know, see that it didn't. Uh, <laughs> And it wasn't tried again. People didn't do that. Let's not make a habit of this thing. No. Well, yeah, right. So, Jeez. so yeah, that was that was a disappointment and uh, and and a surprise to me that they that they let that slide. So I think I know that you left the air force. You retired from the air force and you went off to the civilian world. Did you have any uh, advice for people thinking of doing that after a long Air Force career? Um, one would be in your career, decide where you want to end up. Because I should be where I should have set myself to be where you are out in the Pacific Northwest and Marlon's family out there. I came here to Minnesota for a job and the job didn't pan out. Uh, I liked it. Uh, teaching uh, at a university aviation program. I really liked the teaching. I liked the university environment with the students, but the politics uh, didn't work out. And 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 I guess if that was my objective too, I yeah. I should have had the sense to have gotten a PhD would have been part of it. Um, but um, did you get a master's? Yeah, the job only required masters, and I had two masters. I, well, that was another non-flying. I had a tour at AFIT. Oh, okay. Which is how how I got into acquisition too. Um. So, heck, I don't know. Uh, you know, <laughs> I I didn't want I didn't well I'll, I'll say I didn't want to fly airlines because I saw it as driving the bus. Yeah. And it would not be rewarding. I thought. 
Um, on the contrary, when I ended up with everything, everything else fell through, because um, I did five years as a stockbroker too. Then after the uh, after the university job, um, learned how tough it is to build a book of business from cold connections. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, uh, that's a tough one. Yeah, <laughs> and then um, and and then but then the uh, the flying, I, I really found challenging and rewarding uh, a lot of it was because i was with a good company sky west um you know i wasn't competitive for the major airline because i'd had so much time out of, out of flying yeah and um i think really my lifestyle was better with the company i i had and and be and, and was able to become captain so cool. um you know that's certainly a privilege to be able be competitive for such a lucrative job and position too is airline flying in that regard i guess um and i had another um that i met while flying at another he and his wife were retirees and his suggestion and i guess i'd say that too is retire do an air force career retire from that and then fly when we started that wasn't possible you had to make a choice the airlines wouldn't hire you after age 27 roughly or 30 or you know after your initial commitment oh really you didn't get out then yeah i got replaced by computer so i don't i don't know that side of it at all (laughs) yeah well on the other the other side of the airlines is you're likely to be furloughed at some point so yeah well it depends i mean right right not 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 at the rate they're going now man well, they were sat down during the pandemic, at least, and yeah. So, well, I guess the the final word. It sounds like you like McCord. Oh yeah, I, d- I did. Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 Elmendorf, Anchorage, Alaska, too. That was actually I liked every place we were. We lived in every region of the country, except for the Southwest, and um, and and then the over in Belgium. And then Alaska, and I enjoyed every place we lived. I, I'm just there, kind of curious. When I was a kid, we my dad was stationed in Elmendorf. We we lived up there for three years. Were you on Cherry Hill? No, um, I, I was in in town. That's where I met my wife and married up there and had our first child up there. Oh, so. cool! Yeah. that's great. Well, Roger, I thank you for doing this. I think the folks are going to really like the Falcon stories and the close call stories and everything everything you've shared with us today. This is great. Okay.